Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to my multi-part series investigating the death of then-seven-year-old Sia Van Wyck. During the prior three episodes in this series, we learned a lot about Sia, her family, the events that surround her death, and the man driving the tractor that killed her. But up until this point, the police investigation into Sia's death was only discussed in a general sense. Tonight, we're going to take a lot closer of a look at it. As we've mentioned already, there have not been charges laid against Roland Potter related to Sia's death. Officially, this was just a tragic accident that was not criminal in nature. But as we have also mentioned, Sia's parents firmly believe the original investigation was fundamentally flawed. So flawed that they've had to dedicate their time, their money, and their lives to seeking a full reinvestigation and justice for their daughter. To this end, Sia's family turned to Martin and Associates' private investigation firm to conduct a complete review of the case and, well, when you hear about it, you'll see why they're so steadfast in their beliefs about the initial work done by law enforcement. So let's get into it. In this episode, I'll be joined by retired homicide detective and current private investigator Tom Martin for a discussion surrounding his investigation into the death of then seven-year-old Sia Van Wyck. Seven-year-old Sia Van Wyck was full of life and adventure. She was playing in a neighbor's hayfield in Clementsvale near Digby on July 19th when she was struck by a piece of farm machinery. Sia died hours later from her injuries. Just to start at, at the beginning, I would like to learn a bit about you and explain to my listeners kind of what qualifies you to do these t type of reports and what makes your opinions on this case so valuable. So maybe just a, a, a quick introduction, present day, who are you and what, you know, what do you do? I own Martin and Associates. I started it back in 2011. It's a, a private investigation firm that focuses mainly on deaths and death investigations. Um, uh, death analysis, homicides, suicides, um, any type of equivocal death where there is no clear answer or the families are not satisfied with the answer they're receiving from uh, the police agency that conducted the original investigation. Those are the cases that we do mainly. Mm -hmm. and, and you're well suited for this type of work as you have a decorated background as a homicide investigator, I believe, in, in Halifax. Tell me a bit about your background before you started Martin & Associates. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go so far, Jordan, to say decorated, but I uh, I was a, a police officer. Uh, I joined in 78. Okay. And um, I took my full retirement in uh, 30 years later. Um half of my career was spent in the major crime homicide section that's where i that's where i spent my the majority of my career and as a result um because i was there so long i became uh, 
just through time, I became the senior mm -hmm. uh, homicide investigator in the section. Um, lots of cases, lots of lots of work, lots of hours. And so I think it does uh, qualify me uh, to do uniquely qualifies me to do this type of work. In addition, uh, somewhere around 2099 or 2000, I was qualified in Supreme Court as an expert in uh, crime scene analysis, um, which means I can give opinions on on crime scenes in a in a courtroom setting. Uh, so that's that's basically it. Yeah. And what I'd be curious to hear about is so in, in your history as a homicide detective, you're working in law enforcement following, you know, the uh, best practices and rules and procedures or whatnot that a police force would have. But now in your current role as a private investigator, it seems like you're almost in a lot of cases, almost auditing the work that the original detective would have done. Can you maybe just explain the differences between the type of work you do now with Martin Associates versus what you would have done as a like a homicide detective? Well, as you know, being a member of a police force, you you are a, a public servant. You are uh, employed by the government, and um, there are there's a rank structure, and you must follow that rank structure and seniority and policies, procedures. Um, in the private sector, I have a lot more freedom in that. Number one, I own a company. Uh, number two. I can set my own policies and procedures, so I don't have to get, uh, which we do have, but I don't have to get tied up in the, the bureaucracy of uh, what every single police department in this country faces. Um, it, it's a lot less red tape. I have a lot more freedom as a private citizen uh, than I did as a police officer, and I do not have the authority of a police officer. So to me, it's like it's it's the best way uh, the best of both worlds, because I have the, I work with a great team of people, uh, an experienced team of people. Uh, I learned a long time ago that you're, you know, any one investigator is only as good as the investigators that they're working with. Mm. Um, and I believe that wholeheartedly. And uh, we have a good, strong team and we learn and we, and we, we, uh, we grow from each other uh, still to this day. I'm going to jump into Sia's case here, and um, sure. and we'll talk a bit of, of about your background as as we go here. But maybe just set the picture for me. Um, I know you learned about Sia's death and the incident that happened on the firm well before you became involved in the case. So maybe d just walk me through how you first learned of her death in the incident, and you know what your initial thoughts were as just a citizen here in the news. Ironically, I was I was cutting a field of hay. Um, I I uh, I own a my wife and I uh, own a, a uh, equestrian facility uh, just north of the of the airport, and um, we make our own hay. Uh, we have twelve, soon to be sixteen horses on our on our site. Um, two of ours, and the rest are all boarders. Um, that's a business, another business that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and that started. We purchased this property in '05. I made hay as a younger man uh, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, with a good friend of mine who was a dairy farmer in the Muscadawood Valley. And uh, we, hay is very expensive. And if you're feeding, 
you know, six, eight, 12, 10, 12 horses, you learn very quickly. They can go through a lot of hay. So, so we will make, uh, as it stands now, we will make anywhere from seven to 10,000 bales of hay a year. And those are small bales, square bales. Uh, so we make a lot of hay. So I was in a field, one of our fields cutting. And of course, the radio is on with music and you're all by yourself and it's a beautiful sunny day. And I heard this this tragedy on the news that a, that a, a child uh, lost their life. And I don't recall, I've thought about it a few times. I don't recall if it was she lost her life or she was seriously injured um, in a farming incident where I think it was originally reported she was run over by a combine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember stopping the tractor and shutting everything down and just thinking for a minute, you know, how how tragic the whole thing would be for the victim, for the family, and for the farmer. I just thought, how how could this even happen? How can how in the hell could something like this ever take place? And I just couldn't imagine it. And I remember sitting there thinking, and that was my first introduction uh, to this case. That was the very first time I heard anything about it. Wow. So it's it's there's like kind of this uh, irony in the fact that Nova Scotia's uh, leading private investigator, ex homicide detective happens to have like a strong background in farming specifically the kind of equipment that that was involved in in sia's death it's it's almost like you were made to to be like the perfect person to take on this case how do you go from hearing it on the news to actually getting involved with her family and their lawyers and actually doing an investigation well i uh i i uh i heard the news and i uh Obviously, my wife and I discussed it and how tragic it would be mm. um, over the coming weeks. And then on January, um, January the 9th, I believe. No, January 31st. It was the end of January. We got a phone call from one of the law firms that we, we do a lot of work with. I got a phone call from one of the law firms that I do a lot of work with. Um and it was James Giacomantonio uh, asking me if I would consider uh, taking this case. So I, uh, I said, "Well, send me, send me what you can, and I'll, I'll have a look at it, and, and we'll go through it, and I'll see if there's anything we can do." Uh, I don't know much about the case. I only know what's been on the news. I said, but I'll certainly have a look at it. And that's the way a lot of our cases that come in. They come in either from families or law firms and and uh, uh, asked if we'll, we'll have a look. Um, is there anything we think we can do to help them? And uh, so we do the, the intake process and, and uh, it just went from there. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you don't take on every case that comes to your office what made sia's case be one where you're like you know I, maybe i can make a difference in this case and i'm you know i'm going to pursue it was there something about it that piqued your interest yeah um there was it well number one it had to do with the farming industry mm-hmm. and it was something that uh i was very very familiar with mm-hmm. uh number two it was uh, the, the tragic death of a of a very young child mm-hmm. um that should never have happened. And when I started to get into the uh, police documentation that the family obtained, 
uh, over time, I saw that there were certainly areas where we, that could be explored further. Um, and I, I just knew there was a lot we could do to assist this family in receiving answers. We're never going to give uh, closure, and it's not up to us to give justice. It's up to us to provide the truth and answers uh, to families, and that's what we did. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods. Explorers discovering nothing but destitution. True crime calamity. Oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. So pack a lunch. Subscribe to Marooned wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. At the point that you get involved, for the most part, the police, like the, the official investigation has been completed and finalized to an extent. You then get involved in what is it like? What is your um, your task? Is it to audit what's been done or to basically start from scratch with an all new investigation? Like when someone goes to Martin and Associates and gets you on a case, what are you setting out to do? The first thing we'll do is I'll go over the case and decide whether or not we're going to take it. Uh, is there is there stuff here we can help? Are we sure we don't have any um, conflicts of interest with this case? Um, is it, for instance, um, just to clarify the conflict of interest thing. Yeah. My wife is an inspector with the Halifax Regional Police. And I think it's important to get that out there. Um, and the reason why is because she has nothing to do with Martin and Associates. Uh, uh, I have a section of the house that's that's mine and mine alone, and that's that's my office. Um, and I have to make sure that, number one, she doesn't overhear or hear anything, uh, but at the same time, um, I don't want to jeopardize our case that we're working on and I don't want to jeopardize her position. So I, I make that very clear to, to all of our clients uh, right. when we when we take on a case. That's that important. makes sense. So if it's a case she worked on or has some oversight of it, that's probably a good reason that there would you would be a perceived conflict of interest that you'd have to- Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, so then we look at the case. I decide if we're going to take it or not. And uh, part of my criteria for deciding whether or not we're going to accept a case uh, or engage in a case is- is there anything we can do? And by that, I mean, uh, are there avenues that have not been pursued? Are there, are there, uh, is there unfinished business in this case? Uh, could more investigative actions be taken? Um, what was the quality of the, the police investigation? Um, you know, was it proper? Was it complete? Uh, or was it improper and incomplete? So those are the things that we look at. And if, if I, in my opinion, if I think we can do something to help provide answers to families or to our clients, uh, then we'll, and there is no, no conflict, then we will take the case. 
Okay. And, and, and I looked at the, the final report that you provided the family and, and their, their lawyers, and I, I see it as two separate sections. There's like a 16-page summary, which is just kind of like a, almost like an essay that relays your findings. And then there's a much more in-depth, I think hundred and just under 120-page report that it's almost like you showing your math uh, of all of your, you know, all the work you've done and, and basically justifying a lot of the conclusions that are presented or the opinions that are presented in the summary. Uh, looking at the reports, I can tell a lot of work has gone into your investigation into Sia's death. Can you give me a sense of how long you were actually on this case before you actually provide the family with this final report? Like, how long does this take? Well, uh, from the intake process, January 31st, and I think I finished the report on November 4th. Okay. So that's how long it took me to wow. do the investigation. Okay. Not me, but it took myself and my team to do this investigation. Yeah, and that's one thing that was apparent to me when when someone hears of you know a private investigator was hired. I'm picturing you know Tom Martin shows up with a pen and paper and you know does his work and maybe talks to a few people. When I look at this report, it comes across as if there's been like an inquiry done where there's reenactments and aerial photography and like you you go in so many different directions to form your opinions and to look at the case maybe walk us through some of some of the things you would have done in Sia's case to try to get to the heart of what happened like what tools did you utilize or strategies did you use well i think first off we have to look at the fact that opinions are like you know what everyone has one um <laughs> And I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of, especially police officers, uh, if they're on a case that I'm reviewing, all that old bastard, you know, he he's just armchair quarterback and then all the rest of it. And, and yeah, if that's the opinion they want, that's the one they can have. Mm -hmm. um, I don't give an opinion. I don't give an answer to balance of probabilities unless I'm prepared to include all the factors that form the basis for that opinion. Mm -hmm. It has to be laid out there for everyone to see, not just my client, but also if it ends up in a civil case or it ends up in a, in a, a criminal court, I have to justify why I'm saying something. Mm -hmm. um, so that's first and foremost. Secondly, uh, the testing we do is, is pretty much, I can't say, there, there is some testing we do that's, that's, it's mostly case specific in that, you know, if we're working a homicide uh, on on uh, Water Street in Halifax, um, unless there's a visual component that's in question, we won't bother doing site testing because what's the purpose? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do site testing in a field if this took place uh, in an urban setting. Mm -hmm. In this case, we had uh a four foot tall child running through a field of three foot high hay which is not high uh wearing a fluorescent pink top and white shorts and i have to get as the investigator i have to get my head wrapped around what could be seen what could not be seen you know what's possible what's not possible and sometimes the only way you're going to get those answers is if you do specific testing. So you want to look at the curvature of the land. You want to look at uh, the height of any uh, 
fauna or grass, whatever is, is or hay, whatever's around, trees, everything else. And all that has to come into play to try to duplicate as close as you can um, not only the conditions that day, but also what could the operator of that tractor see as he was mowing that field. So that's why there was so much testing in this case. Yeah, and that's what you just described there is one of the more powerful parts of the report is you actually had a child of similar like height and appearance even uh, of Sia dressed in the same outfit she had standing in, I don't know if it was the same or just a similar field. And you have photographs from the view within a similar tractor as to what the operator would see. And, you know, looking at that, that's... um. I think that's beyond what most people would expect to see in a report. It makes it so real, and it puts you right in that seat of the, the tractor. Well, um, the tractor that the operator had at the time was a different make than my tractor, uh, but they were roughly about the same size mm -hmm. as far as horsepower goes. Uh, the mower that that operator was using at the time of this incident uh different make but similar to the mower that I had at that time on my tractor. So we have to look at height is a big issue because obviously the higher you go, the better you can see. Mm -hmm. So we had to try to, to duplicate it as best we could. And I, I just happened at the time to have a field. We have several fields that we mow. And I happened at the time to have a field that was curved very similar to uh, where this incident took place. And uh, the height of the grass was about three feet, three to wow. four feet in different areas. So it it, uh, it took a lot of planning, uh, but it paid off drastically as far as providing what I consider to be, you know, other than being in that field and unless that same field, then unless the, the owner of that field gives you permission, that that's not happening. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's as close as we could get to to actually being in his tractor and on on his field. So mm -hmm. that's what we went with. Yeah. So you spend just under a year. You do all the tests and every interviews and everything you've done to produce your report. The report ends with, I, I think I don't know if you you label it as like my findings, but it almost ends in these different kind of points that that you really seem to drive home with. Oftentimes the report will make a, a statement and then you'll go on to provide justification. I just want to go through a couple of them and sure. uh, get some background. So one of the things that a lot of people who listen to my series about SIA commented on is the fact that it was a young child without direct parental supervision or adult supervision who was left alone with the dog outside to run around. And people question that. Um, one of the statements you make in the report, and I'll, I'll read it verbatim, it says, even though I'm no longer a police officer, I do possess the reasonable and probable grounds to believe that Morgan Van Wick, as a grandparent and a guardian, had a legal duty as a guardian for the victim and omitted to carry out that duty by failing to protect the victim from harm. So when I read that statement, what that tells me as, as a layman is that in your investigation, you, you you've come up with enough that you could make a case for negligence on Sia's grandmother's part. Could you talk a bit about what leads to that conclusion and what things led you in that direction? Sure. Um, and, I, and I don't know if that conclusion is the right thing. I guess that 
opinion or statement? It, it would be an opinion. Okay. Um, I tried to uh, interview uh, this woman, and, and she would not be interviewed, which is fine. The circumstances that brought this child into this field have to be explored. You, you just cannot do a complete investigation and only look at a the the police investigation itself or b the the uh, behavior and actions of the operator of the tractor mm -hmm. what brought this little one into this field what how'd this happen there's some sort of silent communication between eric and his mother mm -hmm. that he's assuming she's going to keep an eye because he's no longer going to be in the room he's going to be upstairs Morgan, in her police investigation, police statement, states, supper's almost ready. And there were some things in there that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'll, I'll try to capture them as I go through this. But mm -hmm. Morgan, the child asks, Sia asks if she can go outside with the dog. Morgan says yes. And Sia and the child go outside. Now, one would think a seven-year-old child not accustomed to the area in a rural area in a, in a farming community mm -hmm. um and morgan hears the tractor going over in the field you would think that this would cause the adult to at the very least check on the child mm -hmm. or have the child come back inside or ensure the child is staying right immediately in the area of the house, like on the porch or whatever. This wasn't done. Um, even after hearing the tractor, uh, I think, and I'm going by memory, I could be wrong on this, but I think Morgan says she went outside, had a look, did not see Sia, and then comes back inside. Mm -hmm. Why come back inside? Why did you go outside and have a look? You went outside and had a look because you heard the tractor. And then when you go outside to have a look, you don't see the child. Why would you not take steps to ascertain the child's okay? Why would you just turn around, and come back inside? And, and so no, that part of it I, is this is why I said that some brunt of responsibility has to sit not only on the grandmother, but also on the father. Mm. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, it, another point that you had made in the report as well is the fact that uh, Sia's mom, Effie, had uh, relayed a message to the grandmother Morgan, like to specifically, you know, don't let her out of your sight. Where, and I think the direct quote from the report may have been something like, "She may run off, you know, keep yeah. an eye on her," sort of thing. Don't and, leave her odious. Do not let that her odious sight. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and, and I mean that's a point that I know is foremost in in Effie's mind um, when we are trying to sort out how this happened and, and, and how the child came to be unsupervised. Um, and I know it tortures her to this day that the child was left alone, even after being warned, do not let this child outside and let her run on her own. And when the idea of trying to figure out what happened that day and specifically what happened in the field, what I found interesting is it, it seems as though the official like police investigation initially it did very little to, to really understand what happened in the field that day, where 
your report and the interviews of your investigators it's and yourself seem to get a lot closer to and a lot more information than what would have been known originally can, can you talk through what when, when you took on the case what you knew about the incident in the field versus what you were able to find out with follow-up interviews and i'm talking specifically about the interactions between sia and the tractor operator mr potter um I'm not sure I have a clear understanding of your question. Can I get you just to run that by me again and just be a little bit more yeah. surgical with it? Yeah. So the when you originally took on the case, it seemed like there wasn't a, a clear understanding of exactly what happened between Mr. Potter and Sia in the field. Your investigation and the report that you produced and the interviews that were done in the creation of that report seem to get a lot more information about their interactions in the field. I believe Mr. Potter may have said more to you and your investigators than he did to the police initially. C can you talk about what you learned about what actually happened in the field that day? Absolutely. Hmm. I don't recall the details. And if you want me to check my report, I can do so, so I can give you the details. But hmm. There was something about the dog with a leash. Mm. And this is something that never, never sat clear in my mind, even to this day. I think the grandmother stated, if the dog is not on a leash, the dog will run. Mm. So Sia and the dog go outside without a leash, mm. or it's just the opposite. I don't recall. Okay. Anyway, it didn't, either way, it didn't make sense to me because the dog was going to run um, either with or without the leash, whatever the, 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 the precursor was. I don't recall off the top of my head. See, it wants to go out and play with the dog. Mm -hmm. If the owner of a dog says this dog will run, guess what the dog's going to do? It's going to run. Mm -hmm. Sia is a very energetic, vivacious busy, committed child to animals, crazy about animals. And the family kept saying to me, we don't know why C would be down in that field. We have no explanation as to why C would be down or over in that field. And to me, it was very obvious the dog took off, probably scared by the sound of the tractor. Mm -hmm. um, and C was trying, in my opinion, Sia, everything that I found during the course of my investigation established that Sia was doing her best to get the attention of the operator of the tractor because she was afraid. I believe she was afraid for the welfare of the animal. Um, and that also ties into the statement that the, that Sia's grandmother had made where it seems Sia left came back briefly without the dog and said something and then left again. And what she, I guess what the idea means is what she may, or what the idea or the opinion may be is that she came home briefly to say, you know, I got to find the dog or something's going on and took off again. Is that kind of what you make of that short You visit? have what Sia said through the door? Uh, it's, um, there was some debate, debate where whether or not she said, I'm fine or the word find. Correct. That's it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I believe. I mean, 
you can't look at anything in a case like this in a vacuum. You have to look at all the moving parts together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the operator of the tractor, when he's interviewed by the police, he says, well, you know, I, I looked in my rearview mirror. I saw this kid running behind me, you know, across behind me. And the next time I looked, she was gone. So I figured everything was okay. And next thing I know, uh, she's laying in the field mm-hmm. after the event. Okay. That interview with the police took a total of six minutes. That's not good enough. That's that's not. I'm sorry. That's not good enough. And if someone's going to say I'm being critical of the RCMP, that's bullshit. I'm not being critical of the RCMP. I'm being critical of the decision to interview the operator of a tractor that took the life of a seven year old child for a maximum of six minutes. Yeah, that's I, what I'm saying. I, yeah. And I've said this when we talked before. I had someone broke into my car and stole some change. I had called the police to report it. And I certainly spent more than six minutes talking to the cop who showed up at my house to investigate someone going in my unopened car in my driveway one night. Uh, so it does seem unusual that it would happen that quick. Now, I, I want to read a, a one other paragraph from your report that relates to this section and specifically relates to the way Potter described it to the initial investigator versus the way he described it to uh, to your team. Yep. So you, you, you state, the impression that Potter left the police with was that he did not see her at the time of the incident. The whole thing was a terrible accident and he felt horrible and that he only had seen her in the field out the back of his tractor and for only a few moments. When interviewed by Martin and Associates investigator uh, Sean Green, Roland Potter clearly stated that he'd observed the girl in his hayfield chasing after the tractor, jumping up and down, and waving her arms for a period of two minutes. Now, those, those are very two very different versions of what what happened. Is is that unusual to get that much more information out of someone and that much more clarification? Um, no, it's not unusual, and I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, you cannot do a six-minute interview uh, with the operator of a piece of machinery that, that, that killed the child. Um, and expect that you're going to get the full story. Um, more time has to be invested in the initial interview and probably follow-up interviews because this incident just happened. I would never expect a police officer to uh, interview someone once, moments after the incident happened, and then never go back for a sit-down proper statement interview, um, which is what happened in this case. That that statement interview proper interview a couple days later after the initial shock starts to to wane a bit that's the time you want to do your interview not sure you want to do something nice and clean and tidy within a short time frame but you want to get into details and you want really want to find out what happened you do it a period of time afterwards secondly we aren't police officers uh we make that very clear to every single person we talk to interview even clients. Mm-hmm. Um, when we tell them, when we tell people, you know, listen, we're not cops. There's nothing. There's nothing we can do. We just want to talk to you about this and try to get to the to the truth, to the facts, and an issue. Um, people have a tendency. Some people, I should say, have a tendency to want to take the time and talk to us. They feel less threatened. They feel. Uh, less in a possession of jeopardy, um, they feel more comfortable. You know, especially if the investigator that I send down there is just a, a good old country boy who can talk to anyone uh, who fits into the community, who who 
he's not going down there in a three-piece suit and a tie. He's going down there in a pair of jeans and a you know a t-shirt and trying to have a discussion. Mm-hmm. It's less formal. And uh, Potter originally did not want to speak to us in any way, shape, or form. Um, but then, you know, within hours, he's calling my investigator wanting to talk to him. So that's what we what we facilitated. If the police initially believe he just had a quick glance of her, that's one thing. But it appears, based on what he told your investigator, is that she's running behind him, jumping, waving her arms around, seemingly trying to get his attention, which then ties, I guess, and adds some more uh, credibility to the idea that she may have been getting his attention to protect the dog or something of that nature. So it it that bit more information he gives allows you to get a much clearer picture of what likely was happening in you know in the field uh, up leading up to the incident one of the important things to do in a, in a case of this nature is to learn about the victim learn about uh doesn't matter if they're seven or 70 it, you want to learn about the person's behaviors what do they like what do they not like uh you know are they sensitive to light are they sensitive to sound uh, you want to do what's referred to as a victimology, and you want to find out every single possible thing you can think of about this child. And one of the things I learned when we did the victimology was she's not big on noises. She shies away from loud noises. Uh, she's an extreme, extreme animal lover. I mean, she had bugs in her house for pets. That's how much she loved animals. Um, not, you know, she doesn't has about an average you know, pain, tolerance, whatever. And how this becomes important to me is this child was barefoot. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked through a freshly cut hayfield in bare feet, but I have, and I can tell you it is excruciatingly painful. The reason being, all you've got left is stubs of grass about this high at various thicknesses, Mm. and it sticks into the bottom of your feet. Just be walking across nails almost. This kid is running. That's how passionate she is and how committed she is to getting this driver's attention. Why would she want to get this driver's attention? Well, there's only one reason why when you put everything together, and that is because she cannot find the dog. Now, whether she's afraid she's going to get in trouble for losing the dog or if something happens to the dog, or she's genuinely worried about the dog, the reasoning doesn't matter. What matters is that she is committed to the point where she's enduring pain, running through this field, trying to get this guy's attention, and she's ignoring him, and he's ignoring her. So uh, that's what the whole idea behind a victimology is, is so you can learn more about the mindset or the behaviors of your victim to the best that you can. And now the idea that he's ignoring her versus doesn't see her or understand the situation leads to the question of whether or not the tractor operator may have been intoxicated in some way. And that is something that also when when people listen to my earlier episodes about Sia's death, uh, a lot of people would speculate that they believe he was under the influence. Uh, Your report states that 
I believe that based on the evidence provided, statements taken, and in listening to the interviews of Roland Potter, that Roland Potter was intoxicated and or under the influence of alcohol at the time he ran over the victim with his hay cutter and tractor. So you, you looked into this to the point that you're willing in, in your report to make the statement that evidence suggests he was. Uh, police were on the scene and investigating him immediately after it happens. Why are they not able to investigate that and if true lay charges against him for you know driving the tractor under the influence? Like what is the difference between what you did and what they saw on the scene? Um, that's a question that I pondered for a long time. And first off, let's break it down a bit into bite-sized pieces. And the first bite-sized piece is why do I think he was intoxicated? Well, I think he was intoxicated because in his very short interview, when it when it concluded with the with the police, the police immediately went to talk to his wife, spouse, whatever. In her interview, she admitted to the police and I'm sure it wasn't intentional, that after she gets home from work, her and Potter sit down. They're sitting outside. They have a drink. They have an alcoholic beverage. And it was after that that Potter says, I'm going to go over and cut that field. Hmm. So we already have the wife saying he had consumed. Hmm. Now we don't know how much he consumed. So we come back to the word intoxicated. What's intoxicated? Well, to me, intoxicated is your normal sober behavior is altered somewhere. It doesn't have to be altered this much. It could be altered this much, mm -hmm. but it's altered. And that's intoxicated. Okay. Not fall down drunk, intoxicated. And then when the police arrive on scene to interview Potter, when they walk up to the host, he's sitting on the deck with a bunch of his buddies. And what's he doing? He's drinking. That's in. So that's the reasoning behind that. That's there. Yeah. One other statement from your report about him drinking afterwards is Constable Golding spoke with Potter at his home at 7.46 p.m. When police arrived, Potter was having a drink with several male friends who had gathered at Potter's residence. As Goulding approached Potter, Potter simultaneously uttered that he was the one that killed the little girl. So the way when I read that, the way I picture it is the incident happens potter and these fellows he's with are on the step drinking as the cop uh, approaches the scene for the first time i believe his wife had made the statement potter's wife had made the statement that he wanted to drink right afterwards to like calm his nerves but i've also heard and maybe you as a uh, an investigator would know this but i i've heard one way people will try to get out of like a, a dui ticket or something is if you can get away from your car when you're drinking and you can and, when you're drunk and you can get a drink Police can't prove that, you know, what you had before the incident versus what you've just ingested. Is there any truth to this idea that one way to kind of hide from a drunk driving ticket is to immediately drink after the accident? Well, you know, there's there's the two different charges. One is impaired driving mm -hmm. and the other is failing the breathalyzer. Mm -hmm. Impaired driving is based on uh, physical evidence, what the, the officer can smell, what they can see, your behavior, your terminology, how steady are you? You know, from visual and, and audio observations, a police officer can determine that someone is intoxicated mm -hmm. at the time they're operating a motor vehicle. With the breathalyzer, people think that, some people think, and I've seen this myself personally, uh, back 100 years ago when I was in uniform, <laughs> um, 
you know, you're, you're, you're going after someone who you think is impaired or you want to stop for some reason. They, they, you chase them to the house, they jump out of the house, they run inside. And the very first thing you go inside to get them and they're chugging a bottle of booze. Well, with the breathalyzer and with the technicians today and with all the training and everything else they can do, they can sort of judge whether you're climbing with your two tests or whether you're dropping. Oh, okay. Right. So that can be determined. So they, they, yeah, they can say with some level of accuracy, I'm not a breathalyzer operator, but the way it's been explained to me is that, um, yeah, we can tell if someone's going up or we can tell if someone's coming down. You know, if someone had a, uh, six or eight beer at, at a tavern and they're stopped for impaired driving on their way home, you would think that their blood alcohol level on the breathalyzer would be here when they're first tested and here the second time they're tested mm-hmm. start to drop right time yeah. but the guy that jumps out of his car grabs a bottle of booze downs it it's going to be the opposite okay. it's going to fly. but i i guess as it relates to um, mr potter driving the tractor and the incident with uh with sia is none of this was done it was just it, it was accepted that he maybe had a drink earlier and that he was drinking now, but they didn't seem to investigate that to any depth initially. Absolutely not. And that was, uh, that was one of the, the uh, very serious flaws in this investigation was that um, that was never looked into further. Um, The fact that he's sitting on his deck with a bunch of his buddies around him. um, The police did not interview any of those buddies. And what's significant about that is, well, what was said, mm-hmm. you know, that we have hearsay laws and all the rest of it, but what an accused person says is, is, uh, somewhat different than the basic hearsay laws. And that is, it could be admissible under certain circumstances. And the police didn't even interview these people sitting with them. I couldn't see her. Uh, she disappeared in the grass. I thought she was home or freaking kid kept running around the field mm-hmm. i had to get that field done i ain't got time to you know mess around with, with kids mm-hmm. all that stuff would have been significant mm-hmm. but it wasn't even explored do you have like again as someone with a strong background in this and you would have been involved in so many investigations both as a private investigator or back in your days in uniform what goes wrong that allows a case like this to have these uh, glaring problems with its investigation. Like what what would lead to things like whether or not he's been intoxicated or was intoxicated being overlooked? How does that happen? Well, it's the, it's the one component that keeps me in business, Jordan. Um, and it's a fatal, fall, uh, fatal flaw by uh, police. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost constantly present in almost every case um, we get, and that is the police very early in some cases, not in all cases, in some cases, the police very early established in their own minds, what the outcome of this case is going to be. Example, I've got a case going into Brunswick, police classified as a suicide. They established it was a suicide the moment the case was brought to their attention. It was originally brought to their attention as a missing person. Once they heard some circumstances, not all, but some, they locked on, oh, this is a suicide. Mm-hmm. It's a simpler case to investigate. 
Uh, it doesn't take as many hours. It's not going to cost as much. Um, we can clearly establish this was a suicide to the point where actual hard evidence to the contrary is ignored. Wow. Let's go to see his case. Exactly the same thing. The officer that interviewed the operator of the tractor, I would say he was actually sympathetic to and supporter of the operator of the tractor. Is it a good human quality? Absolutely. Is it a quality I would want an investigator? Hell no. You're not there to be someone's friend. You're not there. You're there to be a human being, but you're also there in the role to be an investigator. And you have to professionally do everything you can to determine what happened. We have a child who's at that time seriously, seriously injured. We got to find out what happened. And they're saying things to the operator like, well, there's nothing more you could have done. You did all you could do. And when I saw that, it it's wrong. It's unprofessional. It's not their role to be there for that. And that is the approach they took with the operator of this, of this tractor. And I guess the idea of being able to turn off kind of your emotion and your empathy and sympathy when you're an investigator, it it can be applied to all sides of the investigation, be it dealing with, you know, a suspect or witnesses, but also with the victim. And that's going to lead us to kind of the next point I want to ask you about is there's, there's questions about whether or not Potter had seen her before he hit her. Uh, and if, and if so, where she would have been in relation to everything else. And this is something we talked about where before our recording is when you're, when you're dealing with, a child or, or any kind of victim of a crime or, or an incident like this, the deceased person's body becomes a part of the evidence. And I guess you need to turn off that emotion and sympathy to be able to interpret the evidence, i.e. the deceased child's body. Can you talk to me a little bit about, without going into too much detail, about what Sia's injuries tell you about the manner in which she was struck. I believe Potter's first explanation was that she was like ducking down in front of his tractor. I think he had said something like, you know, what was she doing hiding in the grass or, you know, something to that extent. But what what do her injuries tell you is likely to have happened? It's a, a very difficult part of the investigation, especially when you're working with a child death. Mm -hmm. And that is at some point in time, you're going to have to sit down with the medical examiner and you're going to have to sit down with the uh, photographs of the scene, if they exist, and photographs of the autopsy of the child. And you're going to have to see for yourself the injuries that were inflicted uh, on the child. And believe me, I get no pleasure looking at the mutilated body of a child. It's a part of the job that I've done, as far as I'm concerned, my life, my adult life anyway. It's hard. But you have to put your emotion aside, and you have to compartmentalize, which is what I've learned to do over the years. And the injuries on Sia, what am I looking for? Well, Sia is now, we, we revere the human body to the point where we properly have a burial, have a funeral, have a cremation, whatever we're gonna do. 
the human body is not a piece of garbage. The human body is not just taken and thrown away after death. Uh, in a case like this, where there is an investigation ongoing, the human body becomes a very, very significant piece of evidence. And in Sia's case, she had a story to tell. Can we just take a minute? Yeah. Give me a second. Hello, listeners. Sorry to pull you out of the episode like this, but I want to take a moment and remind you of the benefits of a nighttime premium feed subscription. First of all, I release the episodes ad-free and two days early on the premium feed, which gives you the show quicker and a lot less painfully. Secondly, I maintain a full back catalog of nighttime episodes and countless hours of bonus content only on the premium feed, so to give you more of the show than any sane person would probably even want to listen to. And the third thing, premium feed subscribers who do so annually get a discounted rate and receive a free swag pack by mail. Who doesn't love mail? And lastly, but hopefully most importantly, the premium feed will fund the creation of the show. My mics, my laptop, the little lights on my desk, it's all paid for by the combined efforts of the premium feed subscribers. So if any of this sounds good to you, for about the price of a cup of coffee, you can go premium right now at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. I want to thank you for considering it. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, you know, the dead always have a story to tell. It's up to the investigator to listen to and find that story. In Sia's case, she had a big story to tell. And... If she is bent over in the grass, like the operator said, then the injuries you would find on her body would be consistent with someone bent over in the grass. Um, If she's laying down flat in the grass in the field, then the injuries, the cut patterns, because mowers, uh, this particular mower consisted of uh, five or six uh, mower heads that rides a boat two inches off the ground. Each mower head has two, three or four inch blades on it that spin around. And that's what cuts the, that's what, you know, levels the field, cuts the hay. And in this case, the pattern of injuries will tell you with some level of accuracy, the position the victim was in when the injuries occurred. I do not believe Sia was laying flat on the grass. I can say with some level of comfort that Sia was not crouched over in the grass. Uh, The conclusion that I came to with what I think I described as a high or a very high level of probability, because you can't say anything for certain, Mm Uh, human bodies bend and, and move and, and, and in very different ways depending on the resistance they're faced with. However, in Sia's case, her injuries were consistent with her laying on her side and the mower coming at her uh, from her feet up and over or not. So 
not crouched down or in a ball or hiding or whatever. Because number one, you got to apply common sense to this too. And if a child is chasing after a tractor to try to get the attention of the operator, that child is not all of a sudden going to curl up in a ball and hide in the grass. You wouldn't think anyway. It, it, you can't say anything for certain. Is it possible? Sure it is. Is it probable? I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Sia was either standing or she had fallen just prior to being hit by the mower. Meaning standing and knocked over or maybe just tripped and fell and ended up in front of it? or that, is Correct. That... That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the evidence on left behind on Sia's body, it doesn't appear to have been considered um, too carefully by the original investigators, but it also seems like even maintaining the site and examining the site for clues uh, doesn't seem to have been done satisfactory. I want to read you one other, and this is a very disturbing statement that comes out in your report. Here's what you say uh, regarding the site security and the scene security after the event. You say, um, one concerning factor of this site visit by Sergeant Miller is that both he and Sergeant Buckle observed what observed a piece of what they described as human flesh on the ground in the area which the incident took place. Miller captured his findings in a police report. However, there's no mention of what they did, if anything, with this piece of flesh. It appears that Sergeant Miller and Sergeant Buckle simply left the piece of flesh in the field. As they were leaving the area, Potter, who was allegedly so distraught over the terror over the terrible accident, asked Miller if he could finish cutting this field. Sergeant Miller, knowing there was a, pl- a piece of the victim still in the field, told Potter he could go ahead. Like to me, that that seems crazy that they would agree that he would want to continue to mow the field and that they would allow him to continue to mow the field with evidence, human remains still left behind. Is that is that as shocking to you as an investigator as it is to me when I read it? Yes, it is. I um, I have to qualify that finding, and that finding is. Those officers make note in their reports, in their documentation that they submitted, that they found this piece of this child in the field. Nothing further is said. So as the reviewer, I don't know what they did with it, if anything. I would think if they gathered it or had uh, the medical examiner gather it or deliver it to the medical examiner, that would have been proper. But there's no mention of that whatsoever. Okay. I checked with the medical examiner. They have nothing to support that taking place. Um, the proper thing to do would have been to have gathered that item or secured that item, have someone come pick it up and deliver it to the medical examiner. I don't see where that was done. So therefore, I have to believe nothing was done. And this is only a part of what you say about the scene, uh, maintaining the scene after. You go on further to say the RCMP failed to do a forensic investigation that would allow a more precise understanding of what happened. The field was not searched or measured. The pictures that were taken were not done uh, skillfully. Accident investigation was not called to assist. FIS were not called in to assist. Potter's tractor was not examined for functionality or even searched, and the cutter was not examined by a forensic team. The case appeared to be closed as an accident before it was even opened. Almost almost nothing was done to investigate the events that led to the death of Sia Van Wyck. Now, you, you list off in that section a whole bunch of things that you would think would have been done just as 
you know, standard kind of procedure when a child is killed, even in a farming accident, you would think this stuff would be done just so all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. But in this case, as, as you described earlier, it seems like it was ruled an accident or it was of the opinion of the investigator that it was an accident from the beginning and it didn't seem to go much further than that. I think anyone who has any, I don't know, I mean, rephrase that. I think anyone with any level, any level of common sense who would review that would say, geez, you would have think they would have done more. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think you have to be a, a seasoned veteran investigator uh, or a homicide investigator for that matter to understand that something's not right here. Like it's like with the, with the, the, the last topic we talked on, which was the, uh, the, the biological material being left in the field. Forensic identification services was not called to this scene at all in any way, shape or form. Well, why do you want them there? They're the ones that do the videos. They're the ones that do the photographs. They're the ones that do the measurements. Um, and we have a case where any logical thinking person would be able to see from what Potter or the operator of the, the, the tractor had said, I made four circles around the field four cuts around the field when I first saw her. Well, when he stopped his tractor after hitting Sia, he was on cut number eight. So how long does it take the operator of the tractor to drive around that field four more times or three more times before he actually came in contact with her? Common sense would dictate, you know, we should look at this and we should measure the outside of this field, figure out how fast he was going, and then we can say how much time. Not just I saw her for a moment behind me, and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Not possible. Mm -hmm. On this person's own words. Mm -hmm. Not possible. Mm -hmm. Then when he talks to us, he comes more with, oh, I watched her for two minutes. I think the more you talk to this gentleman, the more he would tell you. And that's why I say you have to take the time, you have to invest the time and the effort and get this, the full story. And some people, it takes a long time to get that out. Who the hell is going to feel pride over killing a child? Nobody. So take the time with the person. Let them work through whatever they got to work through and see what they give you at the end of it. Mm -hmm. That wasn't done. Uh, no professional services other than the police themselves responded to that field. They put a drone up the next day. Uh, so what? They put a drone up. Anyone could put a drone up. No measurements were taken. We don't know how far the tractor was from the body. We don't know how far into the field the body was. I had to figure out how far into the field Sia was located when she was removed from the field. I had to do that by counting the number of cut swipes. Remember I said he's, there was eight when he stopped his tractor? Mm -hmm. I, can, I can roughly, within a foot or so, figure out how far into the field she was. But that's about it. Those measurements should have been taken. All that, the tractor should have been looked at. Was it faulty? Was it falling down? Mm -hmm. Why wasn't occupational health and safety called into this? This was a workplace fatality. Mm -hmm. You know, one one police officer asked Potter, do you, uh, do you make any money on this farm? Do you sell any? No, no, just a, a private little hobby farm. But when he's talking to us, he's got a big operation. He's selling beef. He's he's selling hay. 
the police should have known that they should have they should have called in occupational health and safety because if they did ohs i think would have done a much more thorough investigation. And, and the reason that's important for people who aren't familiar with how this all works is a, an injury or a death on a workplace has a whole different team or group that is tasked with investigating in Nova yeah. Scotia and would and you suspect would have done a more thorough job than what was done here. And yeah, I agree. I, I believe if, if this was an automobile accident, an insurance company was involved, it probably would have been a more thorough investigation. Uh, now, at this point in time, your report is largely being used for a justification by the family to have a case, this case reopened or reinvestigated or have some legal means to, you know, get justice or get to the truth of this. But if you could go back in time, let's not say you were the investigator, but if the ideal competent investigator was tasked with this case, what do you think the outcome should have been? Knowing everything you know about this and you've learned about it, what would you expect the outcome to be if uh, you know, a well-qualified, well-trained, and well-resourced investigator was tasked with investigating this from the very beginning? Would it be criminal charges or what would come of this? I think, first and foremost, I have to clarify that competent investigator, I don't agree with that term. Okay. I would never blanket anyone with that term unless they had a series of incompetencies that resulted in travesties and justice then i would turn to someone and say you were an incompetent investigator should not be one mm -hmm. that's not what i'm saying here what i am saying is the work that was carried out on sia's case was extremely below standards it was not the level of work i would the quality of work i would expect to find from the rcmp some of the best work I've ever seen done was conducted by the RCMP. They have some amazing investigators. But here's the thing. Any department, any organized police organization, they have superstars, they have steady eddies, and they have paperweights. It doesn't matter. No matter what organization you're in, if you're, if you're working at Tim's, if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's, if you're a police officer, if you're a hospital worker, healthcare, it doesn't matter. We have the superstars, we have the steady eddies, and we have the deadweights. That's just the way people are. That's human nature. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying any of those investigators that were involved in CIA's case fall into this category. What I am saying is the level of commitment, the level of professionalism, and the level of investigative procedure in CIA's case was horrible. Absolutely horrible. And the only thing you have to ask yourself is if this was my child or my grandchild or my great grandchild, would I be satisfied with this? No, no. What do I think should have happened? Well, I think there was enough. I myself, as the person who reviewed this and doing these investigations for a very long time, I think there was enough reasonable probable grounds to at least consider at least consider criminal negligence causing death. I think that there was enough reasonable probable grounds to at least consider impaired operation of a motor vehicle. I think there was there was enough reasonable probable grounds in my mind that I would have wanted to interview the grandmother and Eric further when it comes to 
providing necessities necessities of life to a child right i'm not saying there was enough there for a church i am saying that it should have been looked into further yeah like the, the, there's enough there to justify taking further steps in that direction I exactly guess. exactly mm-hmm. now i don't think you know at the end of the day speaking honestly with you and openly with you and your audience eric or the grandmother would have never gone anywhere but it should have been looked at um the operator of the tractor i think that would have gone i think that would have gone and i think that's the dilemma we're facing today is okay you've done this work um what do we do with it now and that's where your interview with james has to step in and all right well we'll wrap it up with there tom i think um Reading the report was one thing, but hearing you describe it and give all the background on it, it opens our eyes even even further. Now, the next step is going to be to talk to James uh, Giacomantonio about the legal aspects of this, and I'm excited to see where that goes. But I can't thank you enough for sharing some time and your expertise with us and be willing to talk through this report. I just hope it brings some answers to this family. That's all I can hope. And, and uh, you know, we do a lot of these cases, and we not like see his case with children, but we do a lot of these cases. And, and the only thing where our goal is, is to bring public attention to it and hopefully bring some answers, hopefully justice in some cases, but at least answers at the very least. So I, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, I commend you on your job and uh, I wish you all the very best. I want to thank you for joining Tom Martin and I for this conversation. When I went into this case, I had no idea how tragically and how unfairly Sia was treated. Reading the Martin and Associates report makes it painfully clear that Sia didn't get the quality of care we'd expect in an investigation into the death of a seven-year-old child. But once the damage is done and the investigation is closed, what legal avenues do we have to right the wrongs of a closed case? Well, that's going to be a discussion for the next episode in this series. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode, but before we part here, I want to give some thanks. First, a big thanks to Tom Martin for sharing his time and his insight with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. I want to thank LJ from the Dystopian Simulation Podcast, who provides this show's intro and outro voiceovers, as well as Monty Data, who provides the show's score. But lastly, and most importantly, I have a massive thank you to everyone listening to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. And on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Jean-Gabriel, Dale, and Jolene, thank you for going premium. For anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast, or simply share this episode on social media and let your friends know what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas, want to give feedback on the show, or would like to contribute a voice memo to be aired and responded to in an upcoming episode, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com. I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. 
You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elsbeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.